If you have your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, you'll turn to the book of Acts where we've been walking together through this wonderful historical account of the early church, our forefathers, if you will, in faith. And uh, today we'll be beginning in chapter 12. And for the past three chapters in the book of Acts, the early church has enjoyed a relative uh, peaceful time, uh, a time of steady growth in numbers uh, as God has been working. And, And I want to emphasize the fact that when we see these happenings in the early church and as we read through the book of Acts and, and as we consider what is going on with those early Christians, uh, realize that, that none of this is just um, a series of coincidental events uh, that just happened to transpire. It's nothing coincidental about it. It's all providential. Uh, though it may seem that things are happening and the church is reacting and, and people are reacting to the church and things like that, but it's not. God is in control. God is sovereign. He's always been sovereign. He is sovereign today. And God is in control with what happens to the church today. I know we pray for our persecuted brothers in other parts of the world, as we should. But understand that God knows. He knows exactly what they're going through. He knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly what they need. But, but as we look at this orchestrated development of the church in those early, early years, it's inspiring for us to see how God works in such a powerful way. We have been watching as the Holy Spirit of God has been literally uh, accomplishing the Great Commission. As you recall, out of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. And, and, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And up to this point, up to chapter 12, we've seen the Holy Spirit working in the life of the church to, to make disciples of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and now out into Judea, all the way up into Samaria. And as we left off in the last chapter, chapter 11, we saw that God had taken those early disciples as far as the city of Antioch. This great sprawling metropolitan Roman trade center. And now they're poised. The early church is poised to to begin to accomplish the final part of the uh, Great Commission, which is reaching the remotest part of the earth. So as we see this, this ought to excite us. So the church, as I said, up until this point, for the last three chapters, has enjoyed relative peace and steady growth. But would you know it? Satan is still on the prowl. The adversary is still out there and does not like what he sees happening. He does not like what he sees happening today in the church. He never will be content as long as God's church is moving forward because Satan's number one agenda is to attack the kingdom of God. We saw saw that in our Christian growth group lessons and we continue to see it right here in the book of Acts. So in chapter 12, we begin there in verse one. Now that Herod, about that time, Herod, the, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John. You remember James and John, the disciples of Jesus, also known as the, the sons of thunder. But, but James is, is killed with a sword. Verse three. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. So when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers 
to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. So right away we see verse 1, chapter 12, Satan is stirring up again the fires of persecution. And I want you to understand something, church, fellow believers. In the face of evil opposition, the church puts its total trust in the Lord. It has historically, and it should today. We as individual Christians will encounter uh, evil forces. We will encounter painful circumstances. We will encounter crises and tragedies. And our proper response as the people of God is, is certainly to do just that, to put our trust in the Lord. But it shouldn't surprise us, as we see the attacks on the early church, the, the history of the church is replete with the examples of, of unsuccessful attempts to usurp God's power. You'll see it happening right here before our eyes in chapter 12. And as we proceed through the study of the book of Acts and these sermons in the book of Acts, you will see one rebellion after another attempting to usurp God's power and his kingdom. We know that in, according to the scripture, that rebellion began at the dawn of history. Long time ago, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in our Christian growth group lessons as we studied about the kingdom of God, that Satan began his original rebellion against God a long time ago. In fact, in the Old Testament prophetic books of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 38 we saw, and again in Isaiah chapter 14 we saw, that Satan had his beginnings not as, as the devil, not, not as the adversary, but his origins, according to these prophetic books, these chapters, Satan was actually an honored cherub, a beautiful, powerful creature of God uh, called, uh, I believe in Ezekiel, uh, Lucifer, the morning star. And in his beauty, in his radiant beauty, he stood right in the presence of God, there at the throne of God. And one of his primary purposes was to bring glory to God. What, what a position! And yet we understand as we read in those prophetic descriptions of the rebellion of Satan that he allowed his pride to lead him to rebel against God. And of course, God quickly and soundly defeated Satan and he and a third of the angels who joined in the rebellion were cast out of heaven down to the earth according to Revelation in chapter 12 verse 4. And so hence was the origin of the attacks of Satan upon the kingdom of God and it would continue to follow after that, time and time again. All through history, you'll see where Satan is inciting evil men, evil nations, evil king uh, empires to attack God's people. All the way back in the book of Exodus, we see Pharaoh, you know, how the evil one has hardened the heart of Pharaoh against God's people. And, of course, we know the fate of Pharaoh. But even when the children of Israel occupied their rightful place in the promised land, we know there were the Philistines, and there were the Moabites, and there were the Hittites, and other pagan nations that constantly harassed the people of God. We know that God allowed the great empires to rise up to bring judgment upon His people. So there were the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Persians, uh, and, and, and as we see in this context here in chapter 12, the Roman Empire has, has exercised its uh, oppression over the people of God. So Satan is constantly has constantly down through the years, the, the centuries, raised up people to attack the people of God. Even more recently in modern history, 
We know that there was the Nazi uh, regime that came up against the people of God. And then uh, communism that has exercised its attack on Christians and Christianity and the church. And even more recently, Islam. And more specifically, radical Islam. And uh, you hear on the news on a regular basis now that the, the term ISIL, uh, the Islamic State, and folks, it's no secret. There's no, there's no hidden agenda there. They're out to absolutely annihilate anybody that, that represents Christianity or Judaism. They, they have an agenda to wipe Christians and Jews off of the face of the earth. So we even see the attacks that are spawned by the enemy against the, the people of God even now. It's interesting as we look in the context of chapter 12, and you see this all through the New Testament, that Satan actually pinpointed one particular family that he would use to bring attacks against God's kingdom. And I'm talking about the Herod family. I hope we don't have any descendants of Herod here today. I'd hate to offend anybody. That'd be a bad family tree to come from. You know, beginning with the patriarch that we all know as Herod the Great. You remember he was the, he was the king of the Palestinian area when Jesus was born. Oh, what a, what a vicious madman he was. Uh, historians have confirmed and the Bible record surely indicates that, king, that Herod the Great was insanely jealous and paranoid. Why? History tells us that he killed at least one of his wives and three of his sons simply because he suspected that they may want to take over his throne. And, and of course, he wreaked havoc upon the, the populace, uh, his own people. But then, of course, we remember in the Scriptures how he exercised evil against God's kingdom. When Jesus was born and the, and the uh, wise men came and reported to Herod the Great that, that a new king of the Jews had been born, what did he do? He quickly ordered soldiers to go to Bethlehem and kill all the baby boys, two years old and younger. What a vicious man he was. But then the family tree doesn't really improve because the one, that's, one of the sons that was fortunate enough to live after him, Herod Antipas, we know him as the Herod who was the king at the time, <clears throat> excuse me, who had John the Baptist beheaded. And then, of course, during the time of Jesus' trial, he mocked the Son of God. And then we come to the king, Herod. See, there's another Herod. There's a Herod for every generation. So we find ourselves in chapter 12, verse 1, when it talks about Herod the king. This is Herod Agrippa. The, one, the first, Herod Agrippa number one. And he's a grandson of Herod the Great. And, and so we see him also bringing attacks upon the church, upon God's people, against God's kingdom. This self-acclaimed king of the Jews is wreaking havoc in the church. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. And I thought I'd go ahead and let you know that Herod Agrippa II, his son, really wasn't any, even better because he's the one that the Apostle Paul stood before in trial. And of course, he was no friend of Christians either. So there's a whole family that Satan has energized to, to, to bring evil attacks against the people of God. So Satan strikes, he strikes viciously, he strikes hard, and as we look in the text today, Satan strikes a staggering blow against the growing church. First of all, in verse 2, in the very murder of James, the brother of John. You can imagine that, how this impacted the early church. They're going along. The church is growing. They have, they've got favor with man. Uh, there's peace. And all of a sudden, King Herod finds out that this would bring uh, a favor for him with the Jews. This is nothing more than a political ploy. 
King Herod realizes that he's got to somehow keep the peace because if there's no peace in Jerusalem, he's going to have trouble with Rome. And the best way to keep peace in Jerusalem is to do anything possible to make the Jews happy. And one of the great things that he's found out that makes the Jews happy is bring some kind of attack on these Christians because they're wreaking havoc with Judaism. And so he has James, one of the leaders of the church, arrested and it says that he was put to death with a sword. Now, historians tell us that, you know, generally the Romans, when it comes to executing a person with a sword, they just, you know, behead them. Kind of like you see ISIS bragging about on the media today. But then commentators have suggested that this would be highly offensive to the Jews. This type of execution, beheading a person, was not something that the Jews favored. So therefore, James was probably ran through with a sword. Irregardless, the fact was, he was murdered, he was, he was executed unfairly, and, and he was e- executed by this pagan king just for political favor. But then, if that wasn't good enough, then it goes on to tell us in verse 3, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now folks, Peter is the recognized leader of the church. We've seen him emerge uh, in those early years of the church, early days of the church. He has emerged as the, 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 the uh, spokesperson for the church. He's been on the forefront of, of, of leading the church forward in the accomplishment of the Great Commission. So Peter is, is obviously a very visible uh, uh, figurehead of the church. And what does Herod do? Because he saw that it pleased the Jews to kill James, I think I'll arrest Peter. And so he does. And so you find, we find that he, he apprehends him. In verse 4, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intended to bring him before the people after the Passover. I think it's so important that we see that, that what's going on here is just evil attacking God's kingdom. Herod not only has Peter arrested, but you'll notice in the scripture in verse 7, Uh, I'm sorry, in verse um, 4. So when he had him apprehended, uh, he put him in prison and delivered him him to four squads of soldiers. We would consider that today to be maximum security. One prisoner, 16 soldiers. I don't think there's that kind of ratio in any prison throughout the United States today with the overcrowding that goes on in our jails and our prisons. One prisoner, 16 soldiers, four squads. Four soldiers to to a watch. And during that watch, listen, the prisoner, Peter, this religious man, is he's chained to two Roman soldiers, fully armed Roman soldiers. And and not only that, at the door of his cell are two more heavily armed Roman soldiers. Some may speculate, well, why why would Herod go to such great extents to secure one prisoner? I dare say that the Jews had already told him, you better watch this Peter guy. He's already slipped out of prison before. I don't know how, but somehow he got out. And Herod is thinking, hmm, I don't want to take any chances because I, I really, this is a big fish. And after the Passover, of course he wouldn't have him executed during the Passover, but, but before all the multitudes of the pilgrims leave the city of Jerusalem, while he had the maximum audience of Jews, he had determined, I'll bring him out and I'll do a little trial, kind of like we did with Jesus. You know what I mean? One of those mock trials. We'll come up with some false charges. And boy, we'll have a big public execution. And I'll really, my ratings in the polls will go up then. So Herod had great intentions. 
and took all kinds of precautions. And you know, I think about for Peter, there in that jail cell. One minute he's out there sharing the gospel, seeing Gentiles even come to Christ. What a phenomenal thing. Thousands of people added to the, 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 the early church. And now here he is, chained to Roman soldiers in a dark, dingy Roman jail cell there in Jerusalem. You know, there are Christians in the pathway of ISIL today. There are Christians in communist China today. There are Christians in, caught up in the war in Sudan today who, who are looking at very bleak circumstances likewise. It continues, folks. Satan is unrelenting in his attack upon those who are avowed professing Christians and are part of the kingdom of God. Listen, dear friend, evil powers will target you also. If you haven't already experienced that, if you are faithful and you stand for Christ and you stand on the Word of God, you can take my word for it. Evil powers will find you out. You will come under attack. They will target you. If not that, then certainly life circumstances will come your way that will be brutally negative upon you and have a terrible impact upon you. And even, even if the darkness of despair looms on the horizon, listen, we can take a great lesson from the early church. As they got word about Peter being arrested there, I want you to see in verse 5, it says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. There's no record of the church petition in Rome. There's no indication that the church boycotted in the streets and walked around with placards, Peter treated unfairly, down with Herod. That wouldn't be good. What did they do? What God's people always do? What God's people always ought to do? And the church, instead of giving up and raising a white flag, they called out to the Lord. They trusted in the Lord. Those early believers didn't raise their hands in despair. But brothers and sisters, they did raise their hands in holy prayer. Which brings me to the next point of the message, and that is the church unleashes its powerful weapon. The most powerful weapon that mankind possesses in the hands of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians and in chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, as Paul has given us the spiritual armor, the armor of God, with which to do spiritual battle. Paul knows we're in warfare, ladies and gentlemen. We have an enemy that is determined to destroy you know, the people of God, to undermine the kingdom of God. And Paul gives us all the spiritual armor that, or enumerates all the armor that God gives us from the belt of truth to the, the breastplate of righteousness to the sandals of the gospel of peace. Paul said, put them on. Not just on Sunday, put them on every day. He says, put on the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But then when he gets to verse 18, he says, with prayer and supplication, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert at all times and persevere and pray for all the saints. One of the greatest weapons that we have to do battle against the very one who is bent on destroying us and attacking the kingdom of God is prayer. And listen, in a very short verse, the Bible says a whole lot about how God's people responds to the attacks of evil 
and even against awful situations that we find ourselves in, the church then prayed with solidarity. That's why, you know, just recently, in fact, just before our annual meeting, I called the church together in, in, in a solemn assembly of prayer. Prayer is not just a religious ritual that we go through. It's not just a time to come and go through some words, or religious words, or pretty words. Listen, prayer is coming before the God of the universe and crying out to Him and acknowledging how absolutely dependent we are upon Him. Listen, prayer is a wonderful time to express the body of Christ, the unity of the body of Christ. We are many members... But the scripture says over and over we are one body. One body. In Romans 12, 5, the Apostle Paul says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ. And each member depends upon the other. We're all interrelated. And nothing demonstrates unity better than when God's people come together in one voice, crying out, to God because we are one body. The Apostle Paul picks up on that wonderful analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. You know it and you've heard it. In verse 12 he says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, and so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Nothing brings unity, nothing demonstrates unity more in the body of Christ than when the people of God come together in solidarity and in one voice cry out to God. Listen, nothing unifies the church like heartfelt prayer. And God hears our humble prayer. Ladies and gentlemen, I am a firm believer of that. There's no such thing as an unheard prayer from the heart and the lips of a faithful, God-fearing Christian. God hears our prayers. He responds to our prayers. You're not wasting your time as an individual and certainly not wasting our time as a body of believers when we say we need to pray. Sure, God is there on His throne in heaven. He is omnipotent and He is transcendent and high and lifted up. But ladies and gentlemen, our God, our Father in heaven is never too far away that He can't hear your prayer and He won't answer your prayer. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 91.15, or verses in the Psalm, Psalm 91.15, God says through the psalmist, He shall call upon me and I will hear Him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and I will honor him. That's what God says to, about the humble prayers of his people. When you truly believe in the Lord and you put your trust in him, listen, God hears your prayers. Jesus talked a lot about prayer. In Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, is a part of that great beatitude. Jesus was talking about prayer. He says, Ask and keep on asking. Seek. And keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Do you think that Jesus wanted to get across that we need to talk to God? God hears our prayers. Especially in those times of tribulation and hardship and pain and struggle. Another favorite passage of many of us is Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. Paul says, don't worry about anything but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known unto God. 
And the peace of God that goes beyond understanding, it will guard your heart, your emotions. It will guard your mind, your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Oh, listen, brothers and sisters, like the early church, when we find ourselves up against a dilemma or crisis or tragedy at the hands of evil forces around us or simply by the circumstances of life, listen, we don't need to wring our hands. We don't need to run to the psychiatrist. So, par, sorry, Pastor Chad. But, but we don't need... Listen, the first place we need to run to is we need to run to our prayer closet or gather together brothers and sisters in the Lord and say, we need to pray. We need to pray. When we as the church come under attack, our first response should be to come together in the presence of Almighty God in prayer. You know, it amazes me how children learn things by watching. Those of you that have small children or grandchildren, you know this, or if you don't, you'll learn real soon. They watch what you do. Now I realize my grandson Asher's favorite thing, first thing on Sunday morning, is if him, him and his dad and mom, little sisters, stop by McDonald's and get some hotcakes. He is his granddaddy's and daddy's son. But then when we come together, I notice that Pastor Chad and Pastor Tim and myself, when we go over the worship service in our, and discussion and talk about the day, and then we have time, we, we pray. And little Asher... He, he saw us and he would go over to in a corner there was a little stepping stool we had two steps you've seen it in the workroom and, and I noticed he got real quiet while we were praying so I peeked over there and he's sitting in the corner on, his, on that step stool with his head bowed and his hands folded so we call it his prayer chair listen kids know when prayer means something to you it begins to mean something to them Conversely, if prayer doesn't mean anything to you, then don't expect it to mean something to your children and to your grandchildren. I've told you before that my family has a conference call. There's so many of us that we have to do a conference call once a week just to kind of touch base with each other. And So my dad gets on that. That's his favorite part of the week. It's where he can call in and hear all of us. And we should report in and, and we get a check in on him. But we always end with the devotion. My baby sister Angie will read a brief, read a brief devotion and then my dad will have prayer. You see, we grew up hearing his voice. Last thing in the night, at the end of a long, hard day on the farm, everything is quiet. You went to sleep like a lullaby hearing dad calling on the Lord, calling our names out to God. Whew, I tell you what, I wish more families had that as a tradition today. Let your children see that. So the church is praying with solidarity. The church was also praying with with passion. As we look at that verse 5, it says that, that when Peter was kept in prison, but constantly prayer, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And this, this adverb, constant, can, can be translated earnestly or, or fervently. The church just wasn't saying, well, what are we going to pray for today? And Martha's got a hangnail and, you know, and I got some bills due. Oh, Peter's in prison. <laughs> Folks, that's not the prayer meeting these people had. No, no. It says they were in constant prayer. They were in fervent prayer. They were in earnest, fervent prayer before God. It's interesting that this adverb used again by Luke in his gospel account in chapter 22, Luke twenty-two forty-four, is the same word 
that he used to describe Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. When, the, when Luke tells us about Christ that night before he was crucified in the garden, talking to the Father, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became as drops of blood to the ground. In the Greek, that adverb is closely akin to another word that's a medical term. And, and, and Luke is traditionally known as a physician, and naturally he would look for terms like that. But when he's talking about constant prayer, he's talking about fervent prayer. That medical term describes a muscle that is stretched to its absolute capacity. And we got some athletes in here, and you gentlemen understand, sometimes as you're playing whatever sport it is, or, or ladies... You, you know, sometimes you are maybe running as hard as you can or you are jumping as high as you can. You're stretching and that muscle is almost to, to the point of popping. Listen, the church was praying fervently. Oh, God Almighty. Oh, Father in Heaven. Peter, our leader, our brother. He's in prison. Lord, we're concerned about him. James has already been murdered. Lord, we don't want to lose Peter. So they're crying out to God. Listen, they're praying fervently. With that kind of fervency, folks, things happen. When's the last time, church, we have prayed fervently? When's the last time, Christian, you've come before God and you have stretched the muscle of your prayer because you are so absolutely desperate and dependent upon God and you're crying out with every ounce of energy within you. Oh God, if it doesn't happen through you, it won't happen. Lord, I am absolutely dependent upon you. I throw myself into your hands, oh God. That's the prayer of the church. They not only prayed with solidarity, they prayed with passion. And the Bible tells us God the Father hears passionate, fervent prayer James tells us in James chapter 5, verse 16, he says that God hears the fervent, righteous, uh, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And it's the same way. God hasn't changed. God's heart is moved by the sincerity of our prayers. The church prayed with imperfection. You know, like us. I hate the busting about his bubble, but there are no perfect Christians. Therefore, there are no perfect prayers. And I want to encourage you on that. Because sometimes you hear somebody pray a big flowing theological prayer and you say, oh, goodness, I better just shut up. I don't want to pray. <laughs> Not after sister so-and-so prayed like that. Or brother so I wish I could pray like that. But since I can't, I just won't. Listen, listen, listen. God's response is not dependent upon the perfection of your prayer. You don't have to have perfect faith. You've got to have faith. But it doesn't even have to be perfect. God knows we are still sinners saved by the grace of God, saints by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, living in a flesh nature. Listen, we'll have perfect praying going on one day, but it'll be right on the other side of glory. But in the meantime, here's hope for us. God, perfect God, responds to their imperfect prayers. How do we know that? Look at verse 6. Now remember, Peter's in prison. Four Roman soldiers, two chained to him, two in front of the door. It says in verse 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, 
In other words, this is the night before. Peter's been in prison for several days now. Languishing there in prison, thinking, well, okay, it's over. God waits to the last minute. He kind of does that, doesn't He? Remember when the children of Israel fleeing out of, out of Egypt? <laughs> and where did God take them? Took them to the, 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 the beach at the Red Sea. And, and at the last minute, as, as, the Roman, as the Pharaoh and his army are descending upon them for sure destruction, what does God do? Then He tells Moses, stretch out your rod. Just in the nick of time. Well, the night before, look what God did. When Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel, not the angel, the angel would imply a theophany, which would be Christ himself. This is just an angel. Ordinary angel. And I emphasize that because, you see, an ordinary angel can wreak havoc. These are powerful beings. An angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie your sandals. And so he did. And he, and he said to him, Put on your garments and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. We got any sleepwalkers in here? You probably don't want to confess that, but the fact is, some people do walk in their sleep, and it can kind of be spooky. Because they get up, and you think they're awake. And they'd be walking through the house. They even go to the refrigerator. Get something, look, 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 you know. Come on, go back to bed, and don't even remember it. You know, some people even walk out of the house. That'd be dangerous, but, but I'm just saying. So Peter may be reasoning in his mind, I'm sleepwalking. I'm sleepwalking. It's not real. <laughs> but I'm having a good time. I'm going along for the ride. And when they had, in verse 10, when they were past the first and the second guard post, that'd be, that'd be like somebody walking off a death row in central prison in Raleigh. It ain't going to happen. Now, I know we've had some jailbreaks, but these are lightweights. <laughs> Peter is under maximum security, as we saw earlier. And so, uh, anyway, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them as its own accord, just like one of these grocery store doors. You know, you walk, open, automatic. But he didn't even have to push it. The angel didn't touch it. They just walked and before electric eyes. There you go. Listen, the power of God's being demonstrated here. And they went out and well down one street and immediately the angel departed. Didn't say a thing, just left him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the expectations of the Jewish people. So God perfectly answers imperfect prayers. You say, how do you know they're imperfect prayers? I can't wait to get to this. We're coming to it right now. All right? I want, you to, I want you to see something now. We've talked about the fervency of the prayers of the people. Talked about the solidarity of the prayers of the people. And all of that. But, but the church is still imperfect in their faith. And we're going to see that beginning in verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. And we'll see him later in the book of Acts. Where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda, one of the servants, came to answer. 
When she recognized Peter's voice, because see the gate's on the outside of the house, there's a garden in between. And because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced to, uh, that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it, it, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. So, so just imagine, now here they are. Oh Lord, please, free Peter from... Oh Lord, you've got to let Peter out. Oh Lord, we, we don't know what we're going to do. We need Peter. Lord, oh please spare Peter. Save Peter. And Rhoda's come running in, you know. So they can hear the knocking out, of, out on the outer gate. And, and Rhoda comes running in and says, it's Peter. He's here. Now, now here are the saints praying to God, and their first response is, You're crazy. <laughs> Peter, you're crazy. And go, Oh God, please, please. And she's like, she insists, I'll tell you, it's Peter. I know it is. I know his voice. He's right out there at the gate. And they said, Oh, listen, sister, it's probably his angel. You see, in Jewish thinking of that day, they believed that everybody had a guardian angel. And it wasn't uncommon. For a person's guardian angel in circumstances, like if they died or something like that, or if they want to communicate to people a distance away, your guardian angel could actually take on your likeness. So in their reasoning, they're trying to think, well, she's crazy, let's tell her something. There's probably his guardian angel. But, but you see, Peter, he's standing out there. He, he, he knows Rhoda's run to the gate and, and, and hadn't opened it. And he's still standing out there. He's looking around and so surely those soldiers might be on my trail. And he's knocking and knocking. And, and I like I like the way they describe as the people in verse 16. So Peter, Peter continued knocking and when they, who's they? That's all the people that are praying. So, so they open the door. I, I wonder how does that work? This, let's say that there's a hundred people in that room praying. It's like those old cartoons where the whole crowd moves together, you know? And, and I, I'm just imagining, speculating. They, they all open the door at the same time. And what is their response? They just said, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You, we knew God would free you. They said, it's Peter. Rhoda said, I told you so. <laughs> so the disciples' response reveals the faulty faith that they have. But isn't it wonderful to know that we don't have to have perfect faith? Just give God the best of our faith. Like the father that brought the demon-possessed son to Jesus to heal and, 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 and Jesus says, you know, he can be healed. You just need to believe. And, and the Father honestly, just like we should do, the Father honestly confessed to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. My faith is here. I believe, but, but you've got to help me with the, 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 the part that's not there. And so when we're praying, it's okay to say, oh God, I, I, you know, I'm, no, I'm not praying in perfect faith, but Lord, help make up the difference. He did for these he did for that man, and He will for us. I need to finish. The third point I want you to see is the Lord moves powerfully to glorify Himself. And He did that through freeing Peter. I think about in Exodus 9.16 where God sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell him, let my people go. And God said something to Pharaoh that I think He probably is saying to Herod. God said to Pharaoh through Moses, the most powerful man at that time, Pharaoh, he says, I, I, I have raised you up. In other words, you, you are where you are so that you can see my power and that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. 
Boy, that's, that's God. God said, there's only one reason, Pharaoh, that I'm doing what I'm doing. I just want you to see you're not the most powerful being on the face of the earth. You're nothing more than a puppet in my hands and I'm bringing you down. Well, God was demonstrating something to another man who was egotistical and arrogant and thought he was the most powerful figure in the land, Herod. Because God, let's, you know, let's, let's Herod arrest Peter. And I thought it was interesting. The Scripture tells us there that Peter, as he was chained between these two guards, you know, in verse 6 it says, Peter was sleeping. The night before you're going to be executed? You're on death row? I don't think I could sleep. Peter, sleeping like a baby. Sleeping like a baby. I think Peter realized what Isaiah said. Listen to this. I've got this verse sitting on my nightstand next to my bed. I recommend it. It's better than a sleeping pill, y'all. Listen to what Isaiah says in, verse, in chapter 26, verse 3. He says, you, talking to God, will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. I believe before Peter turned in that night, realizing the next day would be his day of execution if the Lord didn't intervene, but he wasn't worried. Do y'all remember in chapter 21 of, of John's Gospel when Jesus went to the seaside and Peter and the guys were fishing and Jesus called them over to the shore and Jesus fixed fish for breakfast? And then he took Peter aside and, and, and you know, asked him, Peter, do you love me, Peter? You know, you remember what Jesus told Peter? He says, when you're young, you go where you want to and you do what you want. But says, you're going to be old one day, buddy. You're going to grow to be old. And they will lead you where you don't want to go. In other words, Jesus was prophesying Peter's ultimate crucifixion. You know, when Peter went to bed that night, number one, he knew just what Isaiah said. That God was with him. He could put his trust in God. God was stronger than anybody. Even Herod. But, but also, I believe Peter believed the Lord. And Peter looked at himself in the mirror and says, You know, you're not old. You ain't going to die. Jesus says you're going to get old. Look, that's hardly any gray hair. I'm not going to die. Now, I don't know that for sure. But the Lord said it. And I believe Paul could have, I mean, Peter could have easily believed that. But, but here's the point. Here's the point. Peter, like Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel wasn't fretting. He wasn't screaming for help. He wasn't yelling to the top of his lungs, Lion! Lion! <laughs> he was, kept his eyes on the Lord. Peter was the same way in prison. You know what I heard one preacher, Greg Laurie, evangelist, said, I'd rather be in the lion's den or prison with the Lord than to be in the palace without him. I'd rather be in the lion's den or in prison with the Lord than be in the palace without him. You can be down in the dumps. You can be under great duress and, and pain and problems and even being attacked by the adversary. But dear friend, I'd rather be there with the Lord at my side than to be in the most comfortable palatial mansion with all the luxuries the world has to offer without the Lord. 
God was demonstrating to Herod. Herod took all the precautions. I mean, my goodness, maximum security? And, and God just walked him out of there. How, boy, that created a commotion. And so let's look, let's look further. Then, verse 18, Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had, hap- had become of Peter. They had turned that place upside down. But when Herod, when he had searched for him and not found him, he examined the, the guards. I don't mean checked them physically. He interrogated the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. One man goes free. Sixteen loyal Roman soldiers. That was standard procedure, by the way, for the Romans. And he went down to Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. I believe he was trying to save face. He lost his prisoner. He really was in hot water with the Jews now. But also just to get away. Now look at verse 20. Now Herod. Now the scenery changes a little bit, but you've got to follow the theme because God's not finished with him. God's already humiliated him and threw the prisoner right from under his nose. Now verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, having been made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, and asked, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. In other words, they weren't subjects of Herod, but they depended upon the economy of Herod's territory to get their food. And they had, had fallen out with Herod. And they realized we're going to starve to death. So they sent a friend who was Herod's chamberlain to say, Hey, look, let's make peace. These people are groveling. They'll do anything. And so Herod, being the, the, the politician that he is, he thought, well, I'll just, I'll just create a spectacle. I'll, I'll really take advantage of this thing. So I want you to look in verse 21. Here he is, Herod, Agrippa 1. Verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, Sat his throne, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. Now, not only do we have a record in the scriptures that he had this great speech, this great oracle delivery before the people, but he thought these people are, are, are humbled. They they need to see just how great I am. I'm going to really poise myself so maybe it's to make up for what happened in Jerusalem with Peter. And so Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that Herod came out decorated in a silver. I mean, from head to toe, glimmering silver robe. And he timed the event, the speech, at the perfect point in the morning where the sun's rays would be hidden right at the podium. So just imagine, here he comes out, big fanfare, Herod. And he steps out, and, and people shielding their eyes. Oh goodness, he's he's glowing like the sun. Oh my goodness! And then he starts delivering this powerful speech, and the people kept shouting in verse twenty-two, uh, "The voice of a god, not a man. He's not a man. This is a god. Look at him. He's glowing." In the sun, he's got a voice like, an, like a god. Oh, he's, he's in there bowing down to worship him. And Herod didn't say, hey, please stop that, stop that. I'm sure if any of our politicians, any people start bowing down to them and say, oh, he's like a god, she's like a god. I'm sure our humble politicians would probably say, oh, please don't, please don't. Right. But anyway, 
Herod doesn't. He's, he's drinking it in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me. I, I'm like a god. I, I love it. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. But then God's about ready to deliver the death nail. And look at verse 23. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. Herod didn't give glory to God during his early reign. Herod didn't give glory to God when he was arresting people and killing them. Herod didn't give glory to God when he was attacking the church. And Herod didn't give God, God glory here. And God struck him. And I realize it's right before lunch. But he was eaten by worms and he died. Dr. John McCarthy in his commentary on that passage quotes a medical doctor by the name of Dr. Jean Slope Morton. And she said, probably what afflicted Herod, according to Josephus' description and the description we have in the Scripture, is that probably he had a cyst, a large cyst on the, on the lobe of his liver. And that cyst metastasized, if it were, because it was full, it was full of, of developing tapeworms. And, and, and she says that probably as many as two million of these little developing hungry tapeworms were emitted into his, into his abdominal cavity and literally for the next few days Herod was being eaten alive. What a dreadful demise. But you see, God gets the last word, folks. God Almighty does not share His glory with anyone. And I would say that to the rulers of the world today. I would say that to the rulers of our nation today. Don't get so puffed up with your power and your prestige because there is one who is greater before whom you will kneel one day. And whether you like it or not, you will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. As we close on a high note, verse 24, after all of this, was the church depressed? No. But the Word of God grew and multiplied. Herod got eaten by worms, but the Word of God grew and multiplied. Listen, folks, we come under attack today. And the more faithful we are to the Word of God and standing on the Word of God and practicing God-centered worship and authentically being the people of God, you can believe we will be in the crosshairs of the devil and those enemies of, the, of Christ and His kingdom. If you're going through life and things are going your way and everybody likes you and you're reaching no opposition and no opposition is coming up against you and everybody out there likes you and patting you on the back and say, oh, you're just a good old girl, you're a good old boy and we like you, you're no different. Oh, listen, you've got every reason in the world to be concerned because there's one who sits on the throne who knows you and knows your life and knows your testimony and if the world likes you, and if the world loves you, you better believe God is looking at you with angry, disappointed eyes. And one day you will stand before Him. And all the secrets you hold in your heart today that you think other people don't know, I promise you God will bring that to your attention. And you will be judged for it. However, when you stand before God today and humble yourself before Him, 
and live a righteous life before Him even when you suffer. Listen, all the rewards that God has promised of us in heaven will more than make up for anything you lose in this life.